Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Okay, welcome back to the Scola Christi group, and we're picking up with our reading of Romano Guardini's uh, uh, Meditations Before Mass. And believe it or not, this is the 26th meditation of his that we've gone through in this little from this little book. And we've looked at, you know, certainly the length and the breadth of the experience of Mass itself and the height and the depth of the of the mystery. And tonight he's even going to uh, discuss with us time and eternity. And in particular, the difference between our actions in time and the actions of Christ and why that has, why that's so important for us in terms of our experience of the mass and uh, also our participation in the life that comes to us through the Holy Eucharist. And so it's really one of the most beautiful little meditations uh, of his that I've read so far. I know I say that every week, uh, but nonetheless, I think it's true every month. And uh, so we're, we're picking up with uh, the italicized print. And uh, I'll just go through that quickly. That's my little reflection as we pre prepare to go into the text. Gordini raises our level of reflection to the height now by inviting us to consider the nature of Christ's acts in light of eternity. Our decisions and acts, no matter their, what their quality, always have their beginning and end. In a striking passage, Guardini states, with Jesus, it was different. Not only was his will spiritual, it was permeated by the divine will of the eternal Son of God. Thus, even in his decisions, even his decisions had an underlying depth which reached from the gesture of his hand to the divine resolution. They were no longer, they were no longer temporal, but eternal. Jesus' acts began, unfolded, and ended in time, but both the resolve from which they sprang and the power by which they were sustained were eternal. In brief, everything the Lord did took place in time, but came from eternity. And since eternity is unchangeable, everything he did was immortal. Everything Christ does is permeated with eternity. So already it's an extraordinary thought that there's something so different in Christ's acts uh, as he enters into time and uh, in order to bring us salvation, that his actions aren't limited as ours are. That we, when we do something, it has a distinct beginning and end. And so our acts take place within time, chronos, in a chronological way, where uh, Christ acts are more qualitative in the sense of the, the Greek word for, the second Greek word for time, which is kairos, uh, which sort of takes us into the depths of the mystery of God himself. And so as he acts and acted in the lives of his apostles, and as uh, we celebrate the Eucharist. There's something that of eternity that breaks into time, uh, into time as we experience it. And so we, we are drawn into that reality, into something of the eternity of God in and through the Holy Eucharist. And so again, I think he opens us up to something of the profundity of Mass itself, that we're not just engaged in this human act, uh, which of course it is on many different levels, but we are also participation in participating in eternity. That there is an eternity, an eternal liturgy 
if you will, that is taking place. And we are participating in that with the communion of the saints. So it's not simply all of us here at the chapel at the oratory, or even all of those throughout the world celebrating the mass, but all of the saints uh, gathered around the altar, if you will, to celebrate this holy liturgy. Uh, and so eternity becomes present to us, or we become present to eternity, I should say. It takes us in its grip uh, when we celebrate the Mass itself. Given the transitory nature of our lives and actions, this is admittedly hard to understand. In fact, it is an impenetrable mystery into which we can only be drawn by the grace and mercy of God. In and through our faith, we begin to comprehend the mystery the Christ earthly life has been assimilated into eternity, henceforth to be linked irrevocably to every earthly hour redeemed by his destiny. The Lord's earthly life is directly applicable to everyone he loves, to every place and in every situation. And so we've talked about this many times before that you know, none of us suffers in isolation. And there's not one thing that we experience in life where we experience that in isolation alone, that that reality, as we are experiencing it, is permeated with God himself. And uh, we experience this certainly in the most profound way in the Holy Eucharist, in terms of Christ's redemptive mystery, uh, the taking of our sin upon himself, but also the nourishing uh, of us on on. His, his life and through his body and blood. But every, every moment for us is permeated with the grace of God. There's my mom, finally, only 20 minutes late. <laughs> okay. Wherever a man believes in Christ, he finds himself in direct contact with him. And not only with the Son of God, but with the God-man and all of the abundance of his redemptory existence on earth. And so there is a recapitulation, if you will, of every act that Christ performed on earth, every act that he engaged in, becomes present to us when we engage him in faith. And especially when we engage him in, in the Mass. So there's nothing that Christ did on earth. We've talked about this before, that sometimes people will say, oh, I wish I lived during the time of Christ, have been, would have been able to walk with him and hear him teach. And in reality, what Guardini is saying to us is that everything that Christ did is played out before us again and again. We participate in that reality uh, and are present to it, and it is present to us, as if we were there with the apostles. And in a sense, we experience it in a far more profound way than they did at that moment, uh, in the sense of experiencing it, with, with it within us, because Christ's own spirit dwells within us through the gift of baptism and through the gift of the Holy Eucharist. And whatever happens in a general way, whenever a person believes in the Lord, takes place in a special, specific form in the commemoration which Jesus himself established. The instant Christ representative speaks his words over the bread and wine, Christ steps from eternity into place and hour to become vitally present with the fullness of his redemptory power 
in the form of the particular created species of the bread and wine. And so that, that's a quote from Gardini himself, and it sounds might sound a little convoluted, but basically what he's saying is, is that in when the priest speaks the words of consecration, it's at that moment that eternity enters into time. Christ enters into the very moment that the words are spoken. And, uh, you know, it's part of the reason, certainly, that we ring the bells at that point, at the epiclesis, when the spirit, in particular, is called down upon uh, the bread and wine, uh, but to draw our attention to that fact that eternity has become present in a way, but also has transformed the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. And so th this becomes very important for us as Catholic Christians and our understanding of the sacramental worldview, that we do not just believe in an intellectual way. And uh, our faith is not something just holding in our mind uh, this believing in an intellectual fashion in the existence of Christ and the salvation he won for us. But we are called to something far greater and more profound and more intimate. That because in Christ taking our flesh upon himself, this is not something that ends at the ascension, which we will celebrate this coming week. But it's a reality that remains part and parcel of our life as Christian men and women. We experience the presence of God in the most concrete and tangible way through the sacramental life. It's not something, again, that is abstract for us. And so we experience the intimacy of his love and the consummation of that love in the Eucharist. And we experience the, the forgiveness uh, and his merciful touch within the confessional. It is his words that are spoken to us when we hear, I absolve you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so hopefully we'll be able to unpack this a little bit as we go through Guardini's text and it'll become a little bit clearer. All human events are transitory. Consequently, they're precious for they cannot be repeated. What is past is gone forever. Something else can and will take place, and the past event itself can never return. Every moment comes but once, and that is why life is ever new. Something in us is continually welcoming what is about to come and mourning what is about to go. The beauty of life is inseparable from affliction. Life's riches are frighteningly impermanent. And the transitory is always brief, no matter how long it lasts, it is the opposite of eternal. So part of our experience of being human beings is experiencing ourselves in time. And it's part of what makes our life bittersweet. There's a kind of beauty to that, that every moment is precious because every moment is passing. Once gone, it is to be mourned and never mourned and never to be repeated, he tells us. Uh, and so it makes us take hold of our life, and it's meant to make us take hold of that moment and to live it in all of its fullness and not let it pass us by. And this is part of our ascetical life as Christian men and women, that we see that about ourselves as human beings, that uh, we live this transitory existence. And so we don't want to put off for a later time 
uh, our relationship with God, you know, when we're called to pray or we're called to be attentive, not, you know, we, we often become bored and let moments slip through our hands, not, you know, realizing what Guardini is saying here, that we're letting something precious, in fact, the most precious thing for us in this world, slip through our fingers, time itself. And so we should take every moment captive, as it will. Uh, Michelangelo actually said this, that we go through life seeing, you know, with things passing through our eyes, but not really seeing them. We eat, but we do not taste what we eat. We, we breathe, but we do not smell uh, the, the very things in our surroundings, because we aren't attentive to the, the magnificence of the moment, if you will. And uh, I think only an artist or a poet could probably see it and express it that way. Uh, one who observes reality in that kind of contemplative uh, posture. And for us really, I think to enter into the mass and to experience it, experience it in the way that God would want us to, is to take up that contemplative stance that we realize that in this moment, in fact, the, the most extraordinary thing is happening to us, that God is coming in to our midst and making himself present to us, again, not in an abstract way, but in the most concrete and beautiful ways possible. And we find ourselves at that moment at the very foot of Calvary. And so th there should never be a time, I think, when we enter into Mass in this kind of passive way, and in a perfunctory kind of way that we're fulfilling an obligation. That's probably one of the most unfortunate words that we use in, in the West to describe our going to mass on Sunday as an obligation when it actually is the most precious moment of our, our life, of our existence. And uh, to let that pass by is a tragedy. And in fact, we should see it that way. You know, if we miss mass, it's a tragedy because we're missing out on participating in unending love and peace and the joy of the kingdom. And I think if we express that a bit, little bit more clearly to Catholic faithful, the experience of the mass might be a little bit different. Anything that we could do uh, to foster this contemplative stance, the, again, the, 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 the posture of the artist or the poet, uh, when we enter into the chapel, we, would really open up our vision and experience of things. And I think in the past, uh, Catholics experienced this in a far more profound way uh, because they had this sense of the importance of uh, adding to the essence of that moment and capturing something of the, of the drama of it. You know, the vestments worn and have this sort of ornate quality, the music that is played entering in, the, the great procession, the bowels, the incense, the bells, you know, ringing before mass, but also during the mass at the, at the consecration and, and each elevation. Uh, again, the special garments that the servers wear, uh, everything was lent itself uh, to elevating that awareness of those who are in the pews, including the building itself, the architecture, the stained glass windows, 
everything was meant to elevate the, the mind and the heart to what was going on in that moment, to the presence of God. And so many of our churches in modern times, you know, look like airplane hangers. They're not much to elevate the senses in that regard. And in so many ways, you know, there are a lot of people, a lot of students who have come to university here who's ne who've never experienced something like benediction or never experienced anything like adoration. And so have maybe have never smelled incense or anything like that. And uh, I think Ren in one of the groups mentioned that the monstrance being in the form and the fashion of a sunburst, you know, sort of, ca again, capturing visually for us that uh, the, he who is the light of the world and the light of life is present to us in this very beautiful way in the host for us to gaze upon. And that there is a kind of warmth of divine love that shines upon us when we allow ourselves to come in to his presence. And so there's a kind of impoverished existence, you know, for all of our uh, technological skill, you know, everything that sort of dazzles people on the movie screen, we really don't experience the drama of that because it's always through this medium of, uh, of a screen. You know, we, we don't have smell-o-vision yet and it's not not 3d and we aren't really present to it we're watching it uh through this meet in this mediated way and so there's always a distance but when we celebrate liturgy and we're fully involved you know we come in and we genuflect uh we kneel during various parts of the liturgy uh in some of the eastern rites if you've ever been to an eastern rite liturgy they often will cross themselves multiple times They'll do prostrations where they reach down and touch the ground, or they'll, they'll reverence icons. Again, all that sort of adding to the drama of the liturgy. And in particular, we capture it, uh, and unfortunately, a lot of people don't get to experience this during the, the Holy Week liturgies. Holy Thursday, you know, with, with the foot washing, and uh, again, with the procession of the Blessed Sacrament, Good Friday on the veneration of the cross and uh, at the Easter vigil with the Easter candle, the blessing of the holy water for the baptismal font, you know, all again, all these things are capturing for us the drama of eternity entering into time in the way that Guardini's describing it here. But, you know, from the most uh, solemn of liturgies to the daily mass, this should be our experience in terms of how we prepare our minds and our hearts, you know, because this is where, that's where we ponder and look upon these mysteries in the way that Guardini is describing. And it's only when we prepared our minds and our hearts that we're able to enter into that. It's not only the beauty of the liturgy that can do it for us. It has to be a person who's prepared its mind and heart through faith and love that enters into that. So, you know, uh, someone who's completely secular might come to a, a mass at St. Peter's and be overcome by the beauty, say, of the choir and, and the beauty of St. Peter's itself, but not experience the, the beauty of the love that is being made manifest at the altar. It might not speak to their hearts at all. So it's in and through the gift of faith that we come to perceive this eternity entering into time. Even so-called duration, 
time long enough to enable something to take root, grow and fulfill itself is only a pause in the essential flow. It is not an escape from it. Natural science teaches us that nothing in the world can be lost. Though the forms of energy and matter may change, matter and energy themselves remain. The energy consumed in any task returns in its effects. The whole system, however, exists only for an instant. We call a great work or deed imperishable, but this is true only as long as there are men who cherish and perpetuate it. We all have the feeling that a genuine imperishableness must exist somewhere, but this is only a, a vague intuition, a claim of existence, a hope of some mysterious realm in which all that has achieved validity is preserved forever. The feeling becomes clearer and more tangible only when we relate that realm to God, who receives all that is valid into his eternity. But the uneasy question remains, is what man considers valid really so even before God? And so I think what he's telling us is that, you know, as human beings, we've been created in such a way that we look for this and we long for this reality to enter into that eternal life and love fully. But because of our sin or because of a lack of, of faith, we may only have a vague sense of it, he tells us, or a kind of intuition that there's something more. But in reality, even if we create something that seems to have this imperishable beauty to it, enduring beauty to it, eventually it, it passes away as well. I was watching the other night uh, these videos on people who have never heard opera before and never heard uh, Pavarotti sing. And it was curious, you know, people from other countries, uh, cultures that just were never, or people who were just never exposed to Pavarotti. And he's singing Nesam Dorma. And you see the expression on their faces you know, as it's taking place. And at first it seems a little weird to them. They hear the choir in the background and then Pavarotti comes in and he gets to the end of, of the piece. And it's the most, most magnificent, magnificent piece that's ever been written, I think. And certainly I think he's the, has the most beautiful voice that has ever existed as well. But he gets to the end of that piece and they, they go through multiple people as they experience this. And at the end of it, all of them are in tears. And it's as if they have witnessed a miracle taking place. That, you know, on, on the surface, and you could even see some of them sort of moving their head around, you know, like, oh, this is going to be lame, you know, when they hear sort of the, the music in the background and the orchestra. And, but then once he begins singing, all of a sudden, there's this silent expression that comes over their face. And again, very contemplative. They're perceiving something that elevates the mind and the heart. And so, as I said, by the end of it, it's as though they've witnessed a miracle and they are moved to tears. It's really a beautiful thing. If you can find, find it on, online on YouTube, it's worth watching it. Some of the titles of the videos are a little on PC, so just so you're aware of that. Uh, but... Uh, but the, the videos of themselves are, are quite beautiful. But this is what Guardini is getting, getting at here in this last paragraph. 
that even though we are made for this, that there's something about our sin and our failure to look for it and to be attentive to the moment that prevents us from seeing, seeing it. You know, ima imagine how impoverished a heart is that maybe never heard Pavarotti sing that just because they never took the time or were unwilling or, no, or someone never showed them how beautiful it could be. And in terms of our faith, I think that's often true as well. It's our failure as Catholic Christians to bear witness to the beauty of this. You know, to say, uh, like Andrew did to Peter, come, come and see, you know, we found the Messiah. And, you know, the, that should be something that is present in our interaction with others all the time, whether in our words or deeds or specific invitation, come and see the most beautiful thing or listen to the most beautiful thing, witness the most beautiful miracle ever. And we should be able to say that in such a convincing way that it is enough to draw a person to gaze upon it with us. Because these people, even though they had no understanding of opera and could not understand the words that Pavarotti was singing, they could see, still see the, and hear the beauty in it. Okay. How was it with the Son of Man? In one way, the transient quality of Jesus' life seems particularly painful and painfully evident. For not only did that life come to an end, as, all does, as does all human life, but its unutterably divine costliness was prematurely demolished by a will so evil and so destructive that we never cease to wonder how this was possible. So life entered into our world light entered into our world and sought to and the world sought to destroy it so even though you know it, this love is the most beautiful thing for the human soul to gaze upon an experience uh it is like destroying a miracle and so it would be like taking this Pavarotti's you know, uh, version of the nascent dorma and destroying it for everyone so that it was never again accessible for someone to hear. And th this, in a sense, is what the world sought to do with Christ, that he, who is the most beautiful of all human beings and bears witness to the most beautiful love and tenderness the world sought to destroy, and so that's why he says, you know, it's a, a demolished by a will so evil and so destructive that we never cease to wonder how this is possible. How, how could something, you know, like the love of Christ be scorned in such a way that the world we would seek to destroy? But there was something more about Jesus. Not only the fact that his life, with every step he took, penetrated ever more deeply into the already perfect, the already immortal. We act upon decisions of the spirit, which in immortal, which is immortal and hence already has something of eternity about it. The decision itself, however, begins and ends in time. And so the decisions that we make in life can have eternal meaning, whether we embrace the love of Christ or reject the love of Christ. And, you know, that has a beginning or an end 
to it in time. But with Jesus, it was different. Not only was his will spiritual, it was permeated by the divine will of the eternal Son of God. Thus, even his decisions had an underlying depth which reached from the gesture of his hand to the divine resolution. So everything that Jesus did in this world, you know, when he touched a leper and healed him, or when he protected the woman caught in adultery, you know, he began and ended that action in time. But really, it springs from eternity itself, as it were, from the very heart of God. And so there's nothing that Christ does like us that has a distinct beginning and only in time. That even though he enters into time and acts in this profound way in people's lives, it really comes from the eternal will and the eternal love of God entering into time. Salvation enters into, into our world. And so it's, it's never as if for a moment when Christ uh, is in the world that he's, he's acting uh, simply in this limited fashion. There's always eternal love in everything that he does and every word he speaks. There were no longer temporal, they were no longer temporal, but eternal. Jesus' acts began, unfolded, and ended in time, but both the resolve from which they sprang and the power by which they were sustained were eternal. In brief, everything the Lord did took place in time, but came from eternity. Since eternity is unchangeable, everything he did was immortal. So every act that Christ engaged in in this life was immortal and had this eternal quality to it. And this is what was, I think, a stumbling block uh, for both the Jews and the Greeks, that God could take upon himself uh, our humanity uh, and its limitations, its poverty, and that he could take it upon himself in such a way that this eternal quality of God would not be lost that the two would be present to us at the same time. This is the mystery which they could not wrap their minds around. And it's for this reason that they, you know, certainly rejected his saying that the father and I are one. And, uh, or unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life within you. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. They, they could not wrap their minds around the fact that God could act in the world in this way and give himself to us in this way, that it was beyond their experience. And so often as human beings, we, we are not willing to contemplate that which goes beyond the limitations of our own reason, our own intellect, or the judgment of our senses. And so, as we've talked about in previous groups, half of Jesus' own disciples, those who did believe in him, left his company at that point when he taught about the Holy, Holy Eucharist, because he was already presenting to them what he was going to make present at the Last Supper, what, what was going to become reality for them, that, that they were going to be able to consume eternal life and be transfigured by that reality. Anything so far? I know it's been 
rather complicated and more complicated than past reflections. But uh, I don't know if there's one that's been more important for us really to step back from and think about. Because our tendency, especially in our day, is towards minimalism. You know, to do things in a functional way and as quickly as we can to get through it. And so people come in want mass to last no more than an hour to receive that host, maybe having a sense that they're receiving something special or important, but then be able to get home and do the other things of their day as if they were of equal import. Whereas what Gardini is saying is that, no, you know, eternity is breaking into time and there's nothing more important in this world than what is taking place at that altar. And so nothing that we should prepare for more, nothing that we should linger in longer and nothing that we should contemplate longer after we have received it. And this is something that cannot be taught in a CCD class. In fact, I think in some ways we should get way, get rid of CCD classes and try to find something better. You know, parents, I think maybe we should do it. Maybe just read Guardini's book to them over and over again. You know, and as torturous as that might be. Sorry, is this your daughter, Sharon? <laughs> So read this book to her over and over again, nonstop, every night. But there's something that we're failing. Have her read it to you. <laughs> there's something that we're failing to do in a miserable way. And I think even in seminary too, uh, this would have been, I could have read Guardini's book alone. And it would have opened up my eyes to so many different things that we believe and understand uh, as Catholic Christians the sacramental worldview, how it is that God becomes present to us, why this is significant for us, how it changes the way that we view ourselves in time and eternity, this one book and this one reflection. And I, I never had anything like this in seminary. And I, I can't figure out why. Why is it that we have this knack for either complicating things to the point that they are completely beyond us or making them so boring that we, we just would rather do anything else than be in that class. So we, we really have to figure out something. And may, maybe it's, I think the, probably the beginning place is just making our liturgies beautiful. You know, just like it was for those hearing, again, not to keep repeating myself, but the hearing of Pavarotti in and of itself, even though they knew nothing was, was enough to touch their hearts. And if our liturgies and the way that Catholic Christians participated in the liturgies captured what was in their hearts, you know, of, of those, if you had a whole congregation of people who understood this and, and entered into the mass in, in, in a way that reflects this understanding of things, then everyone who would come would probably kneel down in, in imitation of something profound that they were witnessing, even if they had no clue as to what was going on, that they would know that they were in the presence of something extraordinary. Ren. Yeah, I feel like um, what you're saying is sort of, St. Andrew's always been my favorite of the apostles because um, 
Like I'm sure after the descent of the Holy Spirit, he he probably became a pretty eloquent guy. And when he went and like evangelized the world, he probably had to like, you know, say things in a clear and but but that's not how he began. And I've just I've always loved the simplicity of Saint Andrew. Like he encounters the Lord, he falls in love with the Lord, he believes in the Lord, and then he goes and he doesn't try to convince anyone. He's just like, come, see, mm-hmm. and like believe for yourself. And you know, like uh, today I was uh, I went on this long walk and I was down in the strip and I I got stopped by these evangelists for the Church of Christ, the Second Come Christ or something, and they kept saying they believe in Jesus. I it's some weird weird thing, and it's like this random person and I you know, and they were trying to convince me that the Lord, the second coming of the Lord had already come. And, and in a way I felt a little bit, I didn't, I felt a little unequal to it in the sense of like, they were, they were, they were like shooting out dates and names and places and all these things. Like, and in 325, this happened. And then in 450, this happened. And I was just like, ah, like, I didn't know what to do with it. And I felt like, you know, I'm like a, a bad apologist because I, I can't, like, I don't even know what they're referencing, you know, and I can't shoot back dates. And, but I don't think it would do any good, mm-hmm. you know, like I was on my way to St. Patrick's actually to pray a rosary when they stopped me. And, you know, eventually I got to St. Patrick's and my friend and I prayed a rosary and we decided to sing the Salve Regina at the end. Mm-hmm. We were all alone. And it was so beautiful and it just like echoed and it was just, just like this beautiful, quiet, peaceful chapel. I've just felt like, like that's the best thing you could do would be to just, they also have to be willing. I mean, you can't drag people to Jesus. Like, like you know, they, they have to be willing to come and see for themselves, but yeah, it's just, I don't know if they don't have that encounter with beauty or that encounter with silence where they leave and they realize like they spent half an hour doing nothing, but they like, they feel like they've just had this beautiful encounter. Like I. Right. Well, I, th- I think that's exactly right. We, and we're taught that, I think in terms of how we engage each other, that it is in this sort of like dialectical sort of exchange where this you know argument back and forth that and we see it on all of our news programs and we experience it in university classes that this is how we come to comprehend truth you know and you know i think the way that a christian would approach that would be different and maybe more along the lines of what you described that Christ is present for us in the Blessed Sacrament. So maybe the best thing for us to do, if we ran into somebody on the sidewalk, which has happened to me many times, would say, you know, come follow me, and then lead them into the chapel and kneel down and pray silently. Mm -hmm. But to pray as a person who believes in what he's gazing upon. It can't be fake. It has to arise out of this real experience and love of Christ, 
And so to me, that would be the most effective evangelization, which would be bearing witness to the presence of Christ as he comes to us, especially within the Holy Eucharist. And we, we've known, we've talked about before, about how ad, when people experience adoration, you know, Protestants coming in who don't believe in the real presence, nonetheless experience the real presence when they walk into the chapel. And so the, the experience of it speaks to the truth of it. You know, they know when they walk in, they, they see and encounter something extraordinary. And if we could trust that, if we, if we had faith in it, and maybe it's because we don't have that faith, that we can't think at that moment or just act in that moment to say to that person, here, let me show you. Just walk, walk with me over to this church here, and we'll, we'll kneel down here before the tabernacle and sit there in silence with someone. Because, you know, we'll take the bait, you know, but it's, it's not only that. I think it's more of an issue of faith for us, you know, and what is it that we truly believe? Okay. All right. So. Everything he did was immortal. This is a great and impenetrable mystery. Earthly things are buried in transitoriness, and for us, eternity is still only a hope. We are unable to bridge the two. God alone makes this possible through what Scripture calls the new creation, transfiguration. The temporal is not erased, but assumed into eternity. There to acquire a quality for which we have now we now have no concept. One day, though, our whole thinking, now locked in earthly transitoriness, will receive that liberating quality, and we shall be given along with the new heaven and the new earth, the new eye, which really sees in the mind of the Lord. So we will see him as he is. There will become there will come a moment when we see that eternal reality, perceive it, comprehend it, because we've been elevated by grace to do so. Now we are given glimpses of that, glimpses of that in and through the gift of faith. But it's often, as Paul says, like looking in a mirror darkly, or we comprehend it through simply the darkness of faith. So we experience it, we understand it, we see it. But there will become a time uh, when there will be nothing that stands between us, that we will not be limited by our own transitoriness. So we begin to taste now, the, the deeper our faith becomes and the deeper of our Lord becomes, we begin to taste and to experience and to see something of, of that. We are transfigured. We move from glory to glory, St. Paul says. And so the deeper our faith becomes, the closer we draw to God and to, we begin to experience his life. But at some point, and this is where the Eastern Fathers speak to us the most, the experience is that of deification. We become God by participation. How else can we experience him as he is in all of its fullness unless he elevates us to experience him as he is? Unless he takes upon himself our humanity in such a way for all eternity. And this is, I think, what people don't understand, uh, that we believe in the resurrected body, that Christ ascends. And this is what we're going to celebrate on Holy Thursday, 
that Christ ascends into heaven, but he ascends, you know, bearing our humanity, transfigured, transformed. You know, obviously he can walk through walls. They don't quite recognize him. He still bears the marks of the wounds in his body, but he eats with them, you know, and eats, you know, fish. Do you have any fish? Do you have anything for breakfast? You know, so he, they encounter him in the resurrection and then he ascends but he ascends with our humanity. So he's the first fruits, he's often called, of the resurrection. So by virtue of our receiving Holy Communion, we become one with him. But in reality, our, our humanity has already been elevated to this radical participation in the life of the Holy Trinity, because God himself took on our humanity and raised it up to be a part of his life for all eternity. And by when we receive the Holy Communion, you know, it's a consummation. We become one, un, one undivided person with Christ. And so at that point, we begin to experience that fullness of life uh, of God, eternal life. We're experiencing at that moment when we receive Holy Communion and when we bear Christ within ourselves. But there will become a time when we just don't experience that in a transitory way, when we go to Mass and receive Holy Communion, that will be the reality for us without end and without measure, without anything that uh, limits that experience for us. Because God has transformed our humanity in such a way that he's taken it as a part of himself without its corruption, you know, ultimately. This mode of being and seeing was Jesus, Jesus's, with whom it came into existence. He brought it to us in such a way that we might share in it. He is the new, the beginning. As long as he lived on earth, that beginning remained veiled, but it was already here. He had to bear earthly bondage and transitoriness through to the end, because he had to become like us in all things in order to expiate our sins. It was not until the resurrection that the new was able to break through. So insofar as he walked upon earth, he seemed like us in, all, uh, in every way and was like us in every way, except without sin. It's only in the resurrection then that his apostles and others began to see the reality of what taking that flesh upon himself meant that there was a raising up, that it was not only his being raised from the dead after three days, but it was a raising up of our humanity. He's raised up in the flesh. And, uh, and so this is why, you know, the Feast of the Ascension, I think, is always given short shrift, that we don't celebrate it with much solemnity. And sometimes it's, it's moved to the Sunday so people don't have to inconvenience themselves by going to a Mass on Ascension Thursday. It's not Ascension, Ascension Sunday, it's Ascension, Ascension Thursday. And uh, because it takes place, you know, those 10 days before Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And so we should celebrate it, though, I think, as kind of our feast in a special way, because it's the, the feast of the elevation of our humanity into the very Godhead, into the very life of God. Christ ascends to the Father, but he ascends with our humanity. 
And so it should be the most joyous day for us as human beings because we see what we are to become. The, the feast holds within it and proclaims and preaches to us that promise. And yet it's often a forgotten feast, the one that people confess, oh, I forgot to go to the holy day of obligation. <laughs> Sad. Much, much is lost there. After this mysterious 40 days in which disregarding the laws of nature, he appeared and disappeared at will, seeming to hesitate incomprehensibly between time and eternity. He returned to the Father and is now completely eternal. There was a heresy which attempted to free the Son of God from the taint of earthly, earthliness by teaching that he left his body and everything connected with it here below and returned to pure divinity. So the church has already gone through this battle many times before, but in a major way in the early life of the church, where it was as if Christ just took on our humanity for this brief time, cloaked himself in it, but in reality cast it off in the resurrection. And the church had to fight against, against this in uh, saying, no, it was Christ rose in his humanity. And that it's precisely here that we see the meaning of the incarnation as to why he took our flesh upon himself in order to raise it up. He became one of us in order that we might become one with him. And remember, I mentioned in one of the other groups, uh, the saying that was in the Carthusian uh, documentary, Integrate Silence, where God says, I, I became man. I took human flesh upon myself, and you would do me wrong if you do not become God. Like we would give God insult then if we do not embrace the gift that he precisely came into this world to give us. If we don't allow ourselves to be transformed by the grace that he bestows upon us in the Holy Eucharist. And, you know, I can sit in front of a group and say, our whole life should revolve around this reality. And everything that we should do should be focused upon moving from Eucharist to Eucharist. You know, our receiving of the Holy Eucharist, living it out, and then receiving it again. But unless, you know, our understanding of it is filled with what Gordini is saying, unless we can sort of view things, again, from that contemplative stance, from, again, the position of a poet or the artist, where we can gaze upon this and see that something new was being fashioned and came, came into being. From the moment of the incarnation and then at the resurrection itself, we see it emerge in all of its fullness. The new humanity, the new Adam, has risen and has taken our humanity into the very life of God himself. And this is what we are destined to participate in. So we've, we've taken something that is the most beautiful drama and we've made it into a boring story. You know, that this is the, the most beautiful drama that's ever played out before us and before the eyes of men and yet somehow we've banalized it 
And that's what we have to recapture. And I don't think it's going to come through talking about it. I think it's going to come through living it and then through celebrating it in the liturgies itself. Okay. Where did I leave off? Unfortunately, this teaching destroys the essence of all that is Christian. The son of the eternal father became man in divine earnestness, which means irrevocably. Hence, he remains man in all eternity. To be a man means to have a body, not an idealized general sort of body, but one's own specific body. That is what St. John means when he writes in his first epistle, I write of what was from the beginning, what we've heard, what we've seen with our own eyes, what we've looked upon and our hands have handled, the word of life. And the life was made known and we have seen and now testify and announce to you the life eternal which was with the Father and has appeared to us in order that you also may have fellowship with us and that our fellowship may be with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. The life or body, our hands of handle, is not only an impassive form, but also gesture, deeds, sufferings, destiny. Everything that happened to the Lord is evident in his resurrected body. So again, it's not a generalized or general, idealized general sort of body. You know, this is what we have a tendency to do that or or only for a period of time in earnestness Cordini tells us that he took upon our flesh and so that means irrevocably so not just for a period of time but forever he's taken upon himself our humanity and the you know if there's one point of theology for us to take hold of that would be a, a pretty important one and again, you know, I don't think emphasized strongly enough in the seminary or, or else I think priests would, you know, preach better than what they do and certainly celebrate the mass in a more reverent way than what they do as well. You know, understanding uh, what it is that's taking place there at the altar. You know, I don't know why priests feel that they have to do all the stupid stuff that they do and, you know, during the liturgies that becomes a distraction. You know, he should be visible only in the sense of his fulfilling that role, acting in persona Christi. The moment that he becomes a distraction and he's up there dancing and singing and swinging his arms around preaching, he's, he's failed. You know, that he's made himself that which is so much less than Christ, the center of everybody's attention. And there's ego involved in that i don't care what people say you know that oh he's in, in the most engaging preacher or whatever you know i think he's taught that by someone and what happens there even if he's the most eloquent and gifted of preachers he's still placing himself center stage and at that point there's something of the word in its simplicity that he's supposed to be preaching that is being lost and in the same way if he's saying mass and his gestures are so wild, and he's making up words instead of saying the words of Christ or what, what's in the sacramentary, then he's detracting from the mass. And again, ego, his own ego is at the center of things. And when that happens, you have to wonder, you know, it's not a, it's not 
uh, a question as to why people get bored with that or walk away from it, you know, because, you know, if it's just a, a priest up there who's, you know, talking, you know, I, I mentioned that once before when one of my little nieces was asked by my mom, who's here at the group, you know, what do you think about mass? You know, thinking that because her uncle was a priest, you know, she'd say something, oh, I, I like it, or I, you know, I think it's great. And she says, well, all you do is stand up there and talk. <laughs> and, you know, out of the mouth of babes, you know, because I think that's often how things are seen. You know, it's so much talk, it's so many words, but words that have been stripped of this, of eternity, the eternity that they are to bear within them. And so when the priest says, you know, let your spirit come upon this and become the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, that, you know, it seems like so many words to people rather than God at that moment becoming present to us, eternity breaking into time. And, you know, people can hear it in the words of the priest, whether it's something that's coming from the depth of the heart and from a rich faith, or whether it's simply an empty action, a religious action, but religious actions can be as empty as anybody else's and as hypocritical and, you know, a performance. Let's see. Scripture bears staggering witness to this fact in John's report of its wounds, so corporal and deep that the incredulous Thomas was able to obey Christ's command and put his hand into my side. These wounds are the banners of Jesus' life and fate, eternally received in his most vital being. And so, you know, the gospel writers make it very clear to us that when Christ is raised, he's raised in his, in his human body. And, you know, Thomas was not a man without faith. And we've mentioned this before, that he's given the, mis the misnomer, the doubting Thomas, when in reality, we should be thanking the guy, saying, I'm not going to believe until I see it, until I can stick my hands in the wounds you know, I'm not going to believe in the resurrection. And the fact that he was able to do, do that allows us, you know, 2,000 years later to say Christ did not cast off his body. He was raised, and that body is transformed and takes on eternity. And so Thomas can plunge his hand into Jesus' open side and can feel and touch it. Poor guy, called Doubting Thomas for centuries. In that life, nothing could be lost, for nothing took place that did not come from the everlastingness of that will, which the Son carried out the Father's decree in an historical temporal act. Christ's entire life belongs to eternity. Two images express this imperishableness. The first appears in the deacon Stephen's great testimonial speech before the Sanhedrin. He says, but he, being full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. 
And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. It is also to be found in Mark in the form in which it was later incorporated into the creed, sits at the right hand of God. The other image appears in the epistle to the Hebrews in the powerful passage in which Jesus, the true high priest, strides through the courtyards of time across the threshold of death into eternity's holy of holies, bearing the sacrificial blood offering of the New Testament before the majesty of the Father in order to reconcile his justice. In light of these remarks on time and eternity, what does this commemoration with which Jesus entrusted his followers signify? So even in the scriptures, we find this uh, emphasis upon the humanity of Christ sitting at the right side of the Father, standing at the right side of the Father. So the vision that St. Stephen has before he's martyred is of Christ standing at the side of the Father. As if, to, as if to emphasize for us that he enters, he returns to the Father bearing our humanity that is distinct and unique to each and every one of us, but now is part of the very life of God. And we, again, you know, we often pass over those stories without thinking twice about them. You know, Stephen has this vision, okay, you know, he's being martyred. You know, it's a wonderful thing is this vision of heaven, but we don't stop long enough to think, gee, what does that mean? You know, he sees, you know, Jesus standing at the right side of the, the Father. You know, that's sort of odd. To, you know, what does that mean? We never stop long enough to, again, to contemplate that mystery. Gordini goes on to say, we're not going to try to understand now the relation between God's eternal life and events in time. The attempt would only, only result in a confusion of both concepts, as if I haven't done a good enough job in uh, that already <laughs> of confusing things. But uh, he doesn't want to confuse us further, I guess. One day we shall be able to understand when we have been endowed with the new, with that comprehension of the resurrected life, which is the gift of grace. Now we can but sense the mystery of redeemed existence, feeling our way toward it with lowered eyes. In this world, God's, de God's decree is fulfilled in the succession of temporal events. But God himself is eternal. He always was and always will be. God realizes himself both in universal space and in specific space or locality. He exists, however, in the pure here and now. He manifests himself in the differentiation of forms, relationships, characteristics, yet he himself is of an undivided oneness, oneness. Hence, every hour with its content brushes God's eternity. Every place with its content touches divine omnipresence. Every form and every characteristic finds itself again in his all-inclusive simplicity. So because of what Christ has done, we receive the Holy Eucharist. We've been given the gift of his spirit. We're already being transfigured. We already have this eternal life within us. And so everything that takes place in our life, we're brushing up against eternity. We're already beginning to experience that reality for ourselves now. So there's nothing that happens to us in this life that pulls, pulls us or could possibly pull us away from that reality. 
And this is true even of suffering, of affliction itself. That everything that, uh, that is part of our human existence has been redeemed, has been transformed, and now lives in this unique intimacy with God, because God has assumed it all. And this again brings us back to the point that we never suffer anything in isolation. God is always there, even if we don't see it and comprehend it. No yawning during my group, young lady. <laughs> I saw that. I see everything. <laughs> I was moving today. Uh, I'm tired. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Getting a little extra oxygen in, in order to comprehend that <laughs> profound from, truth. From <laughs> okay. Uh, let's see. So he exists, however, in the pure here and now, omnipresent. And this is what we will experience as well, the, the eternal now. That will be our experience. You know, we experience that fleeting moment of the present that is precious for us in this world. You know, it comes, we experience it, and it passes, and we mourn the loss of it, especially when it's something beautiful. But in our life in God, everything is here, the here and now. And so heaven could be described as that, the, the eternal now, the eternal here and now, where the fullness of the love of God and the love of all of those who participate in that life is present to us in an unmediated kind of way. It's hard, as he said, he doesn't want to get into it because it's incomprehensible to us to think that we would that our experience of our loved ones and those that we have lost, that there is nothing that will be lost to us because forever we will encounter them in the here and this eternal here and now. That all that was and all that was beautiful is not lost to us, even though in now, in the moment, in history, we experience it as such and we mourn it because it was precious. But it's not lost to us. And that's why, you know, as Christians, we mourn when someone dies. But we mourn as men and women of faith, those who see through the tears, and we see that empty tomb. And in and through the tears, we also see Christ. And we see our, those who are beloved. They're waiting for us. That, that's the difference. And so, you know, our, our Christian faith doesn't tell us that we don't experience the pain of it. We do. And perhaps a very profound way, maybe in a more profound way, because we see it for what it really is. But we, we still experience it as men and women of faith. Ren. Oh, I'm already unmuted. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I, <laughs> oops. Oops. <laughs> I, <laughs> <laughs> Look, that could have been yeah. that could have been a disaster. I remember hearing once that um, mm -hmm. you know that little that passage from Saint Paul that we see now as through a glass dimly. Right. That we can't really that like we lose a little bit of our understanding because we look in the mirror now and we're like, okay, it's like a reflection back. It's like it's kind of a reverse image, so we can't get it. And they were like, no, 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 like 
remember what glass was like it was literally like as if we look into a spoon you know mm -hmm. and like you can sort of see like okay that's sort of like a reflection of my face right up, it's like, cool. and it's like all weird and it's like the reality is actually incomprehensible mm -hmm. it would be like looking at your reflection in a silver spoon and thinking you had any idea what you actually looked like from that like it's just so completely beyond and um and how amazing is that like sometimes I think about that when I sometimes I, I have a bad habit of mourning things in advance like I I think about, I, I fear a future in which I've lost something and just the thought of it's so overwhelming that I get all upset about it. <laughs> I'm like, it's so sad. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I try to remember then that like the happiest, the most beautiful moment I've ever experienced in my entire life or the strongest experience I've ever had of being loved or loving someone else is so unlike is so poorly a reflection of what it will be like in all its fullness when as you said like we will see Christ as he really is that like I just you know like you just gotta have to trust and move on because but that that's very beautiful like right and I think yeah, that would be true especially in well, I think that's what I was saying. That would be true of our experience of others. Yeah. And perhaps we have experienced a profound love and have lost. And I think our experience is that that feels as though it's lost to us forever or that we will never experience it in the same way. And I think what this is telling us and what we hear in the scriptures and what is promised to us is that our experience of that will be perfected. Not only is it not lost to us, what, what we had, but what we had will be experienced for all eternity without limits. So, okay. Let's see if I can figure out where I left off here. And what is true of God is true also of him who sits on the Father's right, Christ. His earthly life has been assimilated into eternity, henceforth to be linked irrevocably to every hour, earthly hour redeemed by his destiny. The Lord's earthly life is directly applicable to everyone he loves, to every place and in every situation. Whenever a man believes in Christ, he finds himself in direct contact with him. And not only with the Son of God, but with the God-man and all the abundance of his redemptory existence on earth. St. Paul says that in every believer, the unfathomable mystery unfolds. Christ above, who sitteth at the right hand of God, is simultaneously below within that, below within that believer. And all the richness of its salutary destiny, Jesus' life, his childhood, maturity, suffering, dying, and resurrection, unwinds anew in, in every Christian, thus forming his real and everlasting existence. It is no longer, no, now, no longer I that live, 
the Christ that lives within me. So it's an extraordinary thing. It's saying that everything in Christ's life, his childhood maturity, suffering, dying, and rising, is unwinds itself anew in everyone who believes in him. So there's nothing that took place in Christ's life that is not, again, present to us and recapitulated. It takes over again and again to the point that Paul can say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And we've talked about this before, that Paul even makes it more personal. It is no longer I who live, I, but Christ who lives within me. That he, there's no longer any distinction between the self and Christ, you know, in the, sen- in the sense of experience, that all that was true for Christ now is present to Paul in this unmediated way. And that's true for us as well. And so, again, you know, we don't have to be looking back in a wistful way at the experience of you know, those who lived and walked with Christ, that there's nothing that they experienced that isn't ours and that isn't present to us in this magnificent way at every single moment of our life. So we are lacking in nothing. What happens in a general manner, whenever a person believes in the Lord, whenever Christ's redemptive life becomes that person's existence, takes place in a special, specific form in the commemoration which Jesus himself established. The instant Christ's representative speaks his words over the bread and wine, Christ steps from eternity into place and hour to become vitally present with the fullness of his redemptory power in the form of the particular created species of bread and wine. There is no approach to the sacred procedure from our earthly experience. We cannot, we can say neither that it is possible nor that it is impossible. We can only accept it as God's mystery of faith. This truth that is the beginning of all beginning. It is the truth by which a man is summoned, which he obeys, to which he entrusts himself, and from which his thinking takes his new point of departure. Once given and accepted, this beginning becomes the key to infinite realms. It's a beautiful statement that when we begin to believe and we experience Christ present in the Holy Eucharist, that belief, that faith opens us up to a mystery. It becomes like a key for us that opens us up to the treasure house, if you will, of God's eternal love that there is nothing that God holds back to us. And uh, in one of the Eucharistic prayers, it said that what the Father sees and loves in his Son, he sees and loves in us. And so the Father looks at us in the same way that he looks upon his only begotten Son. And all that belongs to Christ belongs to us. And, you know, part of it, I think, is... When we don't live that, and, or when we don't believe that, it's why we continue to experience in our lives uh, this kind of mediocrity, you know, in the sense of how we love, how we give ourselves and in love and receive others in love, and how we live the life of virtue that we are called to. If we believe that Christ dwells within us, then his virtue becomes our virtue. His strength becomes our strength. 
And it's out of that reality that we, we should live. And it's only our lack of faith that prevents us not only from seeing that, but from living it, from experiencing it on a day-to-day basis. I've used that story so many times of, the, uh, of that. I think it's Abba Lot, you know, when the young novice says, you know, that he's, you know, keeping all the roles, that he's living the monastic role and he's living a life of virtue, you know, and there's, you know, so he's not falling short in terms of the externals of the monastic life. And he tells the, the, the elder that, you know, I am, I'm doing everything that you just told me to do. And then the elder turns around to him and holds his hands up into the air and all of his fingers become like torches. And he says, why not become all fire? And I love that story from the Desert Fathers above all, because it, it speaks to that deification that we are called to by grace. That to become God by grace that we're not limited simply to fulfilling what in our own judgment is virtuous, what in our own mind is love, but we are to become God. You know, this, this love that consumes all things, can, you know, consumes our hearts, consumes all that is impure within us, anything that is a limitation. Okay, last paragraph. Hang on, we're almost there. (laughs) Uh, When the intellect attempts to pin down this truth in concepts or express it in words, it becomes very difficult. But is it in itself so difficult? Words do not seem to hit the mark. Actually, it is not difficult, but mysterious. Though it can become difficult in the sense of the listeners at Capernaum who rejected Jesus' revelation, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Such difficulty is a question of the heart's revolt against the new beginning of the self-confinement of the world, shutting itself off from the true light. Once a person honestly desires understanding, he senses the truth without being able to express it. So, you know, our inability to grasp this isn't because it's beyond understanding, because it's difficult. It's because of our lack of faith, because it's faith that allows us to enter into the deepest mysteries of God himself. If we have this Holy Spirit within us that we are told searches the depths of God, that that means that that spirit can guide us to enter into the deepest of all mysteries the deepest of the mysteries, not only of what it is to be a human being, but the deepest mysteries of God himself. And so our inability to grasp the the beauty and the meaning of the Eucharist is because of our lack of faith, not because of the weakness of our understanding and our intellect. This is why our teaching and our catechesis is off altogether. What we should be fostering is the formation of mind and heart that gives, gives rise to a real and deep faith in Christ. Everything else falls into place you know, in terms of our understanding of everything that Guardini is talking about here. But if our, you know, but it only happens if our faith comprehends it, if our faith sees it. 
And so, you know, when our catechesis begins with, you know, reading from textbooks or things like that, or memorizing certain details, you know, that has a place and a certain value, but it's not going to lead us to what Guardini is talking about here. You know, what it's going to make is like, what it's going to make us feel like is that we don't grasp it at all. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, The Song of Bernadette, uh, about Bernadette Subaru, and uh, she's being punished by one of the nuns, and uh, she's talking to the priest at some point and, you know, about the Blessed Virgin revealing herself, you know, to, to her. And she's weeping and she's, you know, you know, you know, why would the Blessed Virgin reveal herself to me? I can't, I don't even know what the Holy Trinity is. I can't even, you know, that she can't define the Holy Trinity. And so, you know, that nun, you know, basically treats her like she's an ignoramus. She's stupid. But in reality, she had this pure heart and such a pure heart that the, the Blessed Virgin chose her to and chose to reveal herself to her and also to reveal the deepest mystery about Mary herself to her, that she is the Immaculate Conception. But it's because she had a pure heart. And so that's what we should be focused on, is, is helping to form the minds and the hearts of children you know that's where they begin to see god they don't need us they don't need to be taught about god if they're created in god's image and likeness and god dwells within them they know him and it's just you know the parents responsibility to help them see that reality more clearly you know by the deepening of their faith and their purity of heart not made by making them define what the what the Holy Trinity is. <laughs> okay. So, and again, we turn to the example of Capernaum. This is why I've said to you, no one can come to me unless he is enabled to do so by my Father. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. Jesus therefore said to the twelve, do you also wish to go away? Simon Peter therefore answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of everlasting life, and we have come to believe and to know that thou art the Christ, the Son of God. This is the rescuing act. We do not understand, but we believe. The words mystery of faith have a double significance. They warn, beware of trying to judge with human values as your intellectual criteria. But they also invite, believe your redeemed hearts, which feel the superabundance of the truth that saves. So the mystery of faith, a warning and an invitation, a warning that you do not cling to the limits of your own intellect and reason. Because in and of themselves, they are incapable of taking you where the human heart wants to go. Rather, believe in that mystery of faith. Believe in, in the hearts that have been redeemed by this, the sacrifice of Christ. And so have been given the grace to perceive, to comprehend the deepest of truths. Such a different way of looking at the, at the faith. Again, this is a book that I think is meant to be read very slowly. 
as we have. You know, if, if this is the 26th reflection, that means, goodness sake, that's, you know, we've been at it for over a couple of years, but it's so rich. But, you know, he refocuses us in the way that's absolutely needed. And I think this is what the church was acknowledging, but never got around to addressing. It was acknowledging that the fact that people were going to mass, but not really comprehending with the eyes of faith what they were participating in. And this is what the church was meant to address. And this is what we hear articulated in Vatican II, but it never took place. Never took place like this. This is a guy who's writing in the 1940s, 20 years, 25 years before the Second Vatican Council. And he proclaims it better than the council itself proclaimed it. He teaches in a Second Vatican II way before Second Vatican, you know, the, the Vatican II took place. And we missed it. So, but hopefully we, we can take hold of it now, of what he's offered us. Any final comments or questions on anything that he's written? Anything from the si silent observers? Yeah, I'll say something. <laughs> <laughs> My mind's been going a mile a minute, and I always um, pull back from speaking up. But, you know, we talk about the mass a lot today, and mm -hmm. we talk about um, people's response to their preparation for mass with regard to the idea of being able to enter into it. And just something that really um, struck me, there are a couple of things. First of all, um, it's just most beautiful that outside of mass, uh, I've noticed that the oratory um, through Facebook or whatever, I get these notifications that they're having that half hour adoration for children and really like guiding them into the sanctuary there to come, you know, face to face with Christ and to gain that experiential type of um, that connection, right? Right. And we're acknowledging their spirituality because they're created by God, first and foremost. And so, you know, with that said, um, when my children were just born, I was kind of, um, I guess, countercultural in the sense that I had the right intentions, but I, I know I failed miserably in many, many areas. However, <laughs> I went into it with the mindset that my kids are not going to sit in front of a TV and be taught like or shown what type of emotion to have. And there were some actual studies out there that um, like when Barney was laughing, kids would laugh, but it wasn't from their own right. internal sense. It was that they were imitating something. Right. And so you fast forward and, you know, kids like, and, and we are all, we're all guilty of like moving into the culture for which we live in the world. And we don't like really take that time to necessarily be quiet and enter into an ex like a just a unifying force like of the fact the reality of God within us you know so so how do we even expect people really to be able to enter into mass and and, and acknowledge the mystery and the beauty of what is actually happening you know at the altar during the epiclesis and and so you know, we have catechesis of the good shepherd, which, you know, um, I was trained in level one. I've never really gotten to use, use it um, officially, like within an atrium or anything. But 
but it's just so for the sake of catechesis at all, it is probably the, and I guess to combine it with like, even like allowing children to go to um, adoration and introducing them to that is, it's probably the most experiential way for them to uh, encounter Christ because there is no McGraw Hill book. It's, you know, the Holy Bible that we open up and proclaim sacred scripture and allow them to experience it. Um, and then what you see, the fruit of that is just really amazing with these really small human beings, you know, that we've completely stripped from the idea that they actually have this capability of, of experiencing the Lord and then being able to draw it on a piece of paper or whatever. It's really beautiful. But, you know, I, I guess I, I brought this up because we talk about faith and something that I've like pondered over and over again in my life up to this point is what does that word mean? Because, you know, when we have our consolations, great. And then wherever there's a consolation there's going to be a desolation. And, and it's taken me like my whole entire life to, to not figure out, but to, to sort of um, understand faith more in the sense of surrender it's kind of like we can we can we can become scholastic and, and seek out these virtues and say, okay, I'm going to be all these wonderful virtues, but we can't do it unless first and foremost our faith means to surrender. That's right. I think in the West, faith has become sort of these defined principles that we believe, these defined teachings about the faith. Mm-hmm. So we equate the faith, which. Uh, with the things that all have flown out of this experience of God revealing himself to us. There are certain truths that we believe, but there are, there are faith takes us not just to understand intellectually those truths, but to encounter he who who has revealed himself. So why would we limit faith to something that is far more, uh, you know, so, so much less, in the reality of what can be encountered. And that's the beauty of the sacramental life or exposing, as you said, children to the Eucharist. You know, it's, you know, if they are created by God and created for him in his image and likeness, and they are given this capacity to perceive him, then, and also are given a conscience, then they have all they need you know, in order to perceive and to know that which is right and wrong and to perceive that which is beautiful, to perceive the divine. And, uh, you know, I see see it in the Eastern Rite children a lot of times too, because their churches are often filled with icons and they're taught at a very early age to kiss the icons. You know, this very concrete, tangible thing that really makes their relationship with the one depicted, whether it's Christ or Mary or the saints, something very concrete. They're shown by their parents. They go up and they kiss the icon out of out of reverence. They show this act of affection, of love. So again, it's not up here, but it's it's within the heart that they, they know that truth. And at Heinz Chapel, Father Drew, who used to be here at the oratory, said that one day he witnessed a father bringing his little daughter into Heinz Chapel. And uh, he has her walking in with her eyes shut. 
And it was one of those real sunny days. And I don't know if you've ever been in Heinz Chapel, but uh, the windows are really unique. There are these high sustained stained glass windows, but they have this unique color of blue too that I think died with he, the, the artist who created, created mm -hmm. the windows. And so the, it's just so, so magnificent. And when it's a really sunny day out and the sun's coming through the windows, they're exquisite. But he walks his little girl in with her eyes closed. And when he gets her into the chapel, he's just now open your eyes. And it's again that that experience of you know that of beauty and the miracle of that and the you know the power that that has to allow a person to transcend themselves. And so a little child in this way you know, did it. She didn't have to be told or taught what transcendence means, right. you know, in that moment, she does it, you know, by being lifted out of herself at that moment to perceive something that was greater than herself, this yeah. beauty. And that's how you begin to form a mind and a heart then that is able to contemplate these greater mysteries by allowing them to contemplate contemplate the mysteries of who they are as human beings, of the world around them, but also then in and through our faith, you know, the things that we participate in. There's nothing more powerful than a child seeing their parent on their knees praying. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the thing that's most formative. You know, when they when they see their parents making that act of reverence and devotion and love. But so much of it, too, has to do with like a language that we use with our children. I mean, from thinking about when a, a child is born and then all these developmental stages. And I just remember like around. Well, I mean, they all have their 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 wonder. Right. But like around 18 months, like just like everything's like, wow, you go outside and everything's wow. And and we kind of like our kids are so even from a very young age now involved in technology to where that wow factor of what God has created, like is kind of, you know, depleted. Yeah. And, and covered up. And, and so when, when they have those wow moments though, and they go outside and they just, you know, see the sunset and it's so beautiful or whatever. And to not like say to them, Oh, look what God, you know, has provided for us today, which is to change that language in addition to, yeah, going, you know, and praying on our knees and everything, but just to connect everything, literally every single thing to God and make it about like just the the, the beauty of the, the fact that God is literally the what has enabled all this and created everything and just that's, that's offered true. all of this, you know, and it's so sad because as we move on and, and technology is a beautiful thing, look at us today. But at the same time, our children are being stripped and cheated from like this, this acknowledgement that God literally is within them. And they, they were, were taking a fundamental dignity from, from them to not really allow them the time, you know, to ex explore and to, and to just experience the wonder of all that. That's you know? right. The wonder, wonder is actually the perfect word. And when you, even when you go back to some of the Desert Fathers, like when we were reading St. Isaac the Syrian, there was a word that he repeated over and over again throughout the text, this of wonder, you know, this ability to be caught up in the mystery of what God has revealed to 
of himself to us. And uh, I think that's part of what we strip, as you said, from children, when we make it all virtual or where it's all tied to technology. And we and when we don't, as you said, connect it to God explicitly for them. On Wednesday night, we were reading from St. Theophan, and he's trying to help the young Anastasia to remember God at every moment, you know, throughout the course of her day. And she's saying, you know, I just can't do it. I get distracted by all these different things. And one of the ways that he teaches her to do it is by reinterpreting all the things that she experiences in light uh, of God. You know, that everything happens, that she would see everything in such a way that it reminds her of something that God has done Mm -hmm. or something that needs to be addressed in her life, you know, in, in the sense of responding to that love. And that's what children need, you know, to be helped to do right from the earliest years of their life, to see themselves, their choices, their decisions, and the world around them, uh, not simply in relationship to themselves. I mean, what we are seeing taking place is the development of a world of narcissists, mm-hmm. as they live in their own little bubble, this you know, virtual bubble, and uh rather than seeing things in relation to God and seeing themselves in relationship to God and to others, their parents, friends, you know, so they become absorbed in video games for eight hours. Think about what that does to a child's imagination and to their heart. Mm-hmm. You know, there's something you're right. That is, you know, the fundamentally is lost in doing so. And we mentioned this before that, you know, you grow suspicious when you hear that the, you know, uh, what's his name? Jobs. Uh, what was his first name? Steve. Steve, Steve Jobs. And, yeah. you know, and the other guy, the other guy with glasses. I can't remember his name either. But uh, they w- wouldn't let any of their kids use like the iPad or anything like that. And you think, gee, you know, we're it's being pushed on every other kid, mm-hmm. you know, for educational needs and everything else and to entertain them throughout the course of the day but these guys who invented it won't let their children get near it and because they know that fundamentally they're destroying something about the child's capacity to imagine to see things you know the symbolic meaning of things so that they are able to to develop as full human beings And so if you're throwing them into the virtual all the time, they're not going to be able to do that if you're doing that from the beginning of their life. I always hated that cartoon with the baby's face as the sun. What the heck was that called? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, my nieces were born right when that came Uh, on. Like, oh, God, help me. (laughs) We had the greatest cartoons when I was growing up. And then I had to suffer through these stupid things that were mind-numbing. (laughs) <laughs> well the other sad thing is that i mean uh, they develop these guys like steve jobs and elon musk and you know these guys like they know that our cell phones are designed to be addictive like they're actually addictive and like they actually create addictive pathways in our brains mm-hmm. they know that the light is set at a certain temperature to make that happen mm-hmm. and it's like who would feed their child alcohol or nicotine or, well, I mean, the one thing we probably do is feed them too much sugar because that actually makes them like crazy little addicts. But it's like, who would 
willingly make of their young infant an addict to something like you know we we watch little children when a phone is taken away from them suddenly and they lose it and we're like oh gee what a little brat like get it together like why doesn't that parish punish them and i'm like well what did i feel like when you're calling me a child quit calling (laughs) it's like what did i feel like when i was you know smoking and i was trying to quit and i was going into withdrawal like that's what these children are experiencing. Like they're not just being brats, they're actually addicted. And it's like destroying their little selves. Like, yeah, it's just terrible. I love my addiction. Don't take it away. <laughs> okay, one final thought, Kristen. And we were really running late here. So yeah, and actually a lot of the stuff that I've uh that I was going to kind of bring up, we've already kind of over a little bit. Um, but so I'll kind of keep it brief, but two thoughts that I had as someone who both uh, went through CCV mm-hmm. now is it, um, I find it, it's interesting reflecting on my experience that um, I can name one, you know, one cat kiss that I think made a particular impact on it. And it's because oh, that he believed what he was teaching us, mm-hmm. you know, that, that like he would teach us about the real presence of the Eucharist. Posture and mass that he had had that from that, and that's mm-hmm. something really registered in my mind and continued. Mm-hmm. Um, and try and I've tried to kind of, uh, you know, uh, when 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 I'm you know when I've taught CCV, um, I've tried to like uh, have you know try to facilitate that encounter, which is kind of hard, you know hard to do like an hour with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but that's that seems to me to be something that is more impactful as we're saying um and then also uh so my uh graduate program uh taught uh it kind of uh, in catholic studies kind of had this like tagline that um what we were really doing was studying the impact of the incarnation on human thought i remember that even being like um an like a very striking thought when i first heard that that um, that the incarnation uh, and you know God entering times that it's you know that's not something that just like happened once and then kind of everything went but God is participatory in every single point right. in and has helped to help save this this culture and that's such great. um and I think that yeah I as as we were just saying I think we've kind of lost that like kind of like enchantment of time mm-hmm. um you know when we just look at technology we look you know what you we kind of live on the surface a little bit instead of to look at like that you know uh you kind of uh, see eternity um in the way that uh you know in, in the way that say other previous ages would mm-hmm. so um it so that so it's i and and you know how to facilitate that you know that's hard to say is it you know we 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 pay more attention to the litur- you know the the liturgical year and you know sure to enter into that more specifically like um a lot of ways to try to re- recapture that like enchantment but it's that something we've lost right i think as we've lost it over a number of generations it's probably going to take generations to restore it but we're the ones who have to begin and part of it is by living it and living it fully ourselves and that's how it's passed passed on from generation to generation. 
we begin to re return to what is most essential and what is at the very heart of our, our faith. And so the church might, like Benedict said, become very small in that regard, in terms of those who really do grasp the significance of the incarnation and God present among us and still present among us. And, uh, and I think we're already seeing that. And, but nonetheless, we're called to, to live this in all of its fullness. Okay, so we're going to stop there for the, thank you for spending your Saturday night with me. Date night with Father David. Woo! <laughs> it is all women in here. <laughs> You're all pathetic. How pathetic. Date <laughs> I'm, I'm here as well. <laughs> oh, well, that's what you get for not turning your camera on, Anthony. <laughs> I don't have a camera. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but, thank, but thank you. It's, all, it's always good to see you. And uh, as, as always, you made it very rich. And so we... Uh, stop there as always with the Our Father. In the name of the Father and of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. I want to God bless you, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Go in peace. Thank you all. Have a great night. Thanks, Father David. Thanks, Father David. See you all. And thanks again. Thanks. Always make it wonderful. Thank you, Father. See you soon. All right. Have a good evening. Good Rest well. Bye, Mom. <laughs>